Welcome back once again to the Known Pleasures podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to the music of the post-punk slash new wave period of the late 70s and early 80s. We've had a few requests to feature some Australian bands on this podcast, so uh, here is Mark to take us down under into the world of Australian post-punk and introduce today's bands. Flowers, or Ice House as they came to be known, and models might seem like strange bedfellows, but both bands sprang from the Australian post-punk scene before going on to the wider commercial success and luxuriant mullets they're perhaps better known for today. Flowers formed on Sydney's North Shore in 1977, initially covering crucial influences like Roxy Music, David Bowie and the Sex Pistols before refining their sound and releasing their standout first single in May 1980. Models rose from the ashes of several punky experiments in Melbourne in 1978 before releasing their debut album in November 1980 to the delight of critics and inner-city hipsters alike. Over the following two years or so, both bands experimented with their sound before taking a more commercial route to the top, but is the early works we're concerned with here. In a pre-80s Aussie landscape dominated by hard rockers and pop balladeers, they immediately stood out as early adopters of the new sounds coming from the UK. Whether it's Ice House's moody mixture of synths and drum machines, or the model's melange of power pop new wave styles and Sean Kelly's quirky vocals, these two bands deserve to be counted amongst Australia's post-punk pioneers. Well, I guess one of the interesting things about Flowers or Ice House is the unlikely roots of the band, given that the singer and chief songwriter and basically the guy who is Flowers or is Ice House came from a classical background, North Shore lad. That Sydney? Could, yep, a conservative part of Sydney. Um, he learned the bagpipes very early on <laughs> and then switched to the the slightly preferable oboe. And it's, a, it's a marginal call. <laughs> we could have gone either way. <laughs> Seems like a lateral move. They're both pretty horrible. <laughs> I, I think the, I love the oboe, I have to say. But uh, he became extremely proficient as an oboist. Uh, Is that the technical term, sure, oboist? It might be. And... But he joined the Sydney Youth Orchestra and then played, I think, at the Sydney Opera House as an oboist. And in his late teens, I think he was still playing the oboe and was, and was taking it quite seriously. I know he went to the Sydney Conservatorium. Yeah, but there, I'm not sure whether there was a blinding light moment for many of the people we've featured in, in podcasts previously. It was the first time they heard the Sex Pistols. I don't know whether that was exactly how it was with, with Ivor, but certainly if an epiphany came to him, it came to him um, at the squash courts, managed by the father of someone who he became friends with, Keith Welsh. I Keith thought Welsh. it was his mother, but there we are. There was okay, some well, family relationship. We, we, we may have read different We may have read uh, different source internet materials. sources. I was going to say glam rock and David Bowie was his um, blinding moment because yep, yep. he was a little bit older. Yeah, too, yeah than, true, than, true. than quite a few of the other bands around. Yeah, and he was certainly big on, as you say, Bolan and Bowie and, and so on. So, yeah, that may well be the case. But I guess it may be crystallised when he met young Keith Welsh, a fellow music devotee, mm-hmm. and they decided to form a band together. Future bass player. Mm-hmm. Future bass maybe player. he was a bass player already, but, uh, yeah, they decided to form a band and start uh, playing covers around the traps. I think yes. it was the first incarnation mm. of the band anyway. Well, the first time I saw them, they were kind of like a punk covers band. And, uh, and I where was, was this? I, I still can't remember the exact first Flowers show I saw, but there was a time, it, this was during 1979, I think, almost every international touring band that came out that I saw, Flowers were supporting them. And 
I remember seeing them like early on, and they'd play Sex Pistols covers, and oh, uh, right. yeah. and I, I remember being really impressed by this because in Brisbane there were covers bands and just played top forty music, and then to hear Ivor Davies sing Anarchy in the UK was was just amazing. <laughs> I would love to lay my hands on a tape <clears throat> of that. Yeah, I know, and. <laughs> And I remember the the reaction from the audience was great because obviously at the time the Sex Pistols had broken up by then, and they said, "Oh, wasn't truly, yes." So uh, I think uh, those of us in Brisbane thought, "Well, we're never going to hear these songs." It was great to hear their renditions of them, and he was really good. So, but but did they play any original material on these? Yeah, um, I think early on it was like half and half. I remember him playing a song called "One Inch Rock," which is a T Rex song. I'd never heard that before. I think even to this day I've never heard the original version, but I know the song backwards because I saw saw Ice House must have played it about ten times, you know. So they played a half-and-half set of covers, like glam and punk covers, and then their own stuff. So that would have been unusual back then for a touring band from Sydney to come to Brisbane and play a fair amount of covers too. I became a big fan of theirs, but um, they became the band that I saw more than anyone else, purely because they were supporting everyone. You know, yeah, every, yeah, every, yeah. I'd, I'd go and see yeah. XTC or some, bands like that, and, and Flowers would be the first band on. What did they look like? Not they didn't look like a punk band, I assume. No, but certainly they had that new wave skinny tie, um, shirt buttoned up. You know, it, yeah. it, they, they had that look. They had, mm. they had the, the right look anyway. I was um, talking recently to Bob Yates, who ran the Civic Hotel gigs at the Civic Hotel in the late seventies. I was talking to him recently and he booked flowers for an eight-month Wednesday night residency in wow. late 78, 79. And he described them as having played basically entirely covers and that Ivor was particularly well-dressed, that he would be wearing like kind of like a thin, thin white Duke, Brian Ferry, you know, very smart, very well presented compared to pretty much everyone else in the venue. Mm. And his mum, apparently, Ivor's mum used to repair his stage clothes and it was all, you know, like <laughs> it was It was kind of like reminiscent of uh, Gary Newman and his family kind of yeah. connections, you know, um, a lot of family support and, and that's the impression that I got from Bob about Ivor in Ice House. And the other kind of interesting detail that uh, Bob mentioned was the fact that Ivor used to play a bit of oboe. Really? During he'd set, break which, out the oboe? Yeah, which is, it's hard to picture that in the midst of the punk and glam <laughs> yeah. covers. I, I'm trying to picture where an oboe solo fits. Um, it's pretty punk rock. To God's sake, the mean, Queen we, we, We've spoken about previously Mick Khan in Japan was an oboe enthusiast, so maybe it was it was one of those rebellious instruments mm, of the yeah, late 70s yeah, yeah. that we just don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a sub-sub punk movie. You had to be really into it to understand it, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I was going to ask you, Graham, because this is a gig that I missed out on to my eternal regret in Brisbane. Four bands touring mm-hmm. and it was uh, – I think it was in excess at the bottom of the bill, followed by Flowers next, followed by Magazine and and then XTC uh, at the top. So wow. and and Curtis, a friend of mine who went, said it was like five dollars or something like that. Yeah, yeah. and you mm. got to see yeah. these four bands, and it was in excess's first time in Brisbane. Mm. Flowers had obviously been up quite quite a few times, and then you had uh, Magazine, unbelievable post-punk influential band and then XTC also hugely influential as well. I mean, that, that must have been an amazing show. Mm, it, was, it was really good. I think I'd seen NXS, I think their first single had been released by then, so I was familiar with them. But Ice House came out and they were fantastic. Well, Flowers. Oh, actually, yeah, yeah, Flowers. And actually this must have been just after Can't Help Myself was released, their first single, because at the very end it was the last song they played 
And Ivo went up to the microphone and said, um, OK, Brisbane, this is our song. And he had this big smile on his face like, we've got a hit, you know, we've got a top ten yes. song. He seemed really chuffed about this. And then the, he played the song and the whole um, a festival hall just sang along with it. So, um, you know, it, just, it seemed like they'd arrived at that point yeah, anyway. Yeah. I don't know if we've jumped ahead a bit here, but... Uh, it was, um, well, that's the first single, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting... Uh, it's interesting that they did go down well because I could imagine it being a pretty hardcore post-punk new wave crowd for, for yeah. XTC and Magazine, for instance. Mm. I mean, the Aussie support act would have been neither here nor there to most well, people. Well, no one who, knew in who, excess at that who, who point, were, who really. Were going, yeah. Who were going there. So the fact that... Flowers didn't get booed off stage was an achievement just to start with. Yeah, and but but uh, but I'm uh, getting great reaction. Yeah, but I find that especially at the time, any band that was slightly new wave, like the first what you could call punk show that I saw was and Graham Parker and the Rumour. Now that they weren't punk by any stretch of the imagination, yeah, not like yeah. a soul band. But they had short hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, someone had short well, hair. Not, not, not even that really. But the fact is that like every notorious Brisbane punk came out that night to see the show because that was that's what yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah, that, that was yeah, as close yeah. as we, we were getting to this movement that was happening in, in the UK. And it would have been the same with In Excess and Flowers. That they yeah. went over really well. Well, plus they'd probably been to Brisbane ten times before, and people knew them a little yeah, bit yeah. from what you're saying. Mm, they'd yeah. actually toured extensively yeah. beforehand. Yeah. So the album wasn't out, but their single mm, was in yeah. 1980 anyway at this mm. stage. So you would have seen them in, say, 79 prior to that as well. Yeah, in, in 79 I saw them. Uh, now, this may have been the first time I saw them was the first time XTC toured with Flowers and the Numbers at Cloudland. Cloudland. And that was fantastic. And I think at that point they'd started to um, play a few more originals. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. But, yeah, there, there were still quite a lot of covers sprinkled yeah. throughout the set. And what gig were you at where the, um, the female friends you had at the time started talking about Ivor? Oh, that, that, that was the uh, the magazine show. It was at uh, Festival Hall and um, I just remember this girl was um, absolutely transfixed with Ivor Davies. And uh, I said, uh, yeah, I think they're really good. I've seen them a few times before. And this girl had pretty much <laughs> drifted away from me and was just hypnotised by um, his his stage presence. So he had he had presence, of yeah, he had, star yeah, quality. That's then. what I was going to say. More than a lot of people from the movement at the time mm, in Australia. Yeah, yeah. He really had this star quality. He did have a, an enigmatic presence because he didn't smile a lot. No. And he looked like he was thinking about important stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Which matters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, I, I was going to say I think that's part of the reason why I was drawn to them when they first came out. First mm. off, they were Australian. So yeah. there wasn't a great deal when this single came out was on a 10-inch vinyl. Yeah, the 10-inch. Yeah, yeah, like an EP sort of thing. Yep. That's what I bought it on yeah, anyway. Yeah. And I remember yep. the first time I saw it or heard it, I, I thought it was great and I couldn't believe it was Australian. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was the only thing that I'd heard coming out of Australia that resembled anything like yep. the sort of music that I was mm. interested in. Mm. It'll it, it be a couple of years after the fact. You had a wonderful little synth, keyboard synth thing pulse through it. at yeah. the beginning. And a little kind of funk And the guitar bit. was yeah. funky, wasn't mm. it? It was yeah, a really yeah, nice, yeah. nice yeah. little funky riff in there. It's an interesting time that we're talking about in terms of Flowers and Ivor Davies and, and their development because Ivor took a long time relative to most musicians of the era in committing himself to being a musician. From interviews that I've read with him, he was waiting to kind of grow out of this kind of rock phase because he was he was a serious musician and you know I think he had very little faith that he was going to ever make a proper living 
mm. out of this. And one of the things he was doing to augment his income during this time was he used to write out the sheet music for pop songs. Oh, yes. So he wrote out this sheet music for Are You Old Enough by Dragon. So when you say he would like transcribe these so that people yeah. could buy the, buy the Yeah, that's music. right. Okay. Um, and the Ian Jury songbook was another one he did and uh, okay. Little River Band and that kind of thing. So mm. he strikes me in, in all the interviews that I've come across where he's talking about that time as a very, very sensible. Serious um, chap. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was 25 when this album and single was released. Right, yep. So that's quite late in rock and roll terms. Yeah. It's not quite sting territory, but mm. it's it's kind of mm. what's kind of getting there, isn't it? 25 to to be releasing your first album is quite old and you probably would have grown out of it by then if you, if you were going to. And moving on to the second single, We Can Get Together, I remember hearing that the first time and thinking, wow, there was the first single, that was fantastic, then there's this. It's like, wow, these guys are really the real deal. Must be something we can talk about do you know what month that single came out? That was a couple of weeks before the the album. Because the album came out before in the Ice House album came out, October nineteen eighty. Yeah, so it was just before then. So it was like, wow, what's the album going to be like? And then you hear the first track. If I'm not going too far ahead, you hear the first track of the Ice House album, the title track, and I mean the first thirty seconds, I think, it just or the first sixty seconds, I think, it just yeah. set my heart aflutter. <laughs> <laughs> well, they kind of I'm trying to put it in the context of why we're even picking this band because most people know them for their success down the track and. And that sort of thing. But this, in 1980, was quite something to hear coming from Australia. It had all the things yep. that you were looking for. Mm. It was kind of moody and spiky, a little bit weird. Fresh sound. Fresh sound. Uh, it was, we would have called it new wave at the time. But it had something that we were all kind of like wanting to hear, obviously. And, you yep. know, they, but they had success. That was the difference between them and a lot of the other bands yep. that were maybe yep. kicking around at the time, Australian bands. They had chart success immediately. I'm not sure where the second single charted, but I know that the first one was a, was a top ten. Yeah, it was around the top ten. Which is a, not a bad achievement. No. Mm. And, then, right. and then there was Walls, which is the, yeah. the song that I loved on that first album. And I, I remembered it. When I first heard off the album, I remember it from them playing it live. I didn't mind the Walls. <laughs> you didn't mind the Walls? Well, um, I, I love the Walls. And uh, it, it, to this day... Um, I think it's one of his one of his best compositions. I far. think I think that album front to back is is pretty damn good. Fat Man, there's some yep. great stuff on that. Really good. I mean, it's all it's all power pop new wave stuff, but it's suitably moody. Yeah, yeah. I'd just like to give a bit of context about where. Australian music was at the time this album came out, why it was an important album and why it had an impact. Um, the top 25 selling albums for 1980 include Pink Floyd, Billy Joel, Cole Chisel, Willie Nelson, Kiss, ACDC, Janice Ian, Fleetwood Mac, Rolling Stones, Boz Skaggs, Elton John, Barbara Streisand. You get the, you get the picture. <laughs> it wasn't exactly an interesting time. So for an Australian band to come out and to be doing things that sounded a little bit like the sort of yeah. stuff that was happening overseas yeah, yeah. was was quite a big deal. So where were Flowers on that list? Well, this is 1980, so this okay. they, they didn't... Oh, oh, so, they, so they didn't make it onto that list? They didn't. No, this is when the album came out. Right, this was okay, the right. year. Yeah, as, as it came out. Yeah. yeah, they did feature in 1981s, you know, as in the yeah. b- biggest albums yeah. for the previous period. But because it came out in uh, October 1980, it didn't really register in that year's charts. Uh, having said that, David Bowie was in there as well, uh, The Police, but it was um, very much a matter yeah, of yeah. The, the landscape was pretty staid yeah. and pretty pretty dull. 
and, and this was an Australian band that was doing this as well. That's exactly right. And I think it's, so, it was fair to say they were the first Australian band that we, we'd come across that were doing something like the things that we were interested in and now having immediate success with it as well. Yeah. Mm, yep. they, were, they were using synths. It, it seemed to reflect what was happening in, in the yeah. UK quite a bit. Sadly, the local success of the album didn't translate internationally particularly and I was a big fan of, of Aussie bands doing well overseas and so I kept a particular eye on how Flowers did in the UK because that was my kind of frame of reference, um, having an, an English background as, but as I do. being born in England. Having You're even been born in England. Proud Australian proud born Australian in England. Proud Australian born you in don't England. don't get more proud Who <laughs> hated that. the Australian cricket team like they were. <laughs> no. So I love seeing Australian bands do well overseas and I kind of thought, well, Flowers... How could they not do How it? How could they The miss? songs are fantastic. Mm. And they stiffed. They did nothing over there. They were crueled by the British music press. One review at least describing them as Ultra Bruce, uh, a combination of Ultravox and the Monty Python sketch or sketches. Because everybody um, in Australia is called Bruce. That's apparently. right. That's right. Oh, now I get that sketch. <laughs> it's a slow burner, man. It is. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to go back and watch did all those old Monty Python. Did you see what he did there? That's clever. <laughs> so ultra Bruce. Yeah. Okay. So having established that, that does more or less reflect um, how well the band went mm. uh, on a critical level. In, well, in the UK. No Australian bands got, got much respect no, no, in those no. days. I think we, we, we were thinking that maybe the birthday party was the first Australian new wavy band yeah, that got any yeah. kind of critical acclaim yeah, because yeah. they were so scary. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Try yeah, absolutely. telling Nick Cave he's not cool. Yes. It's not going to happen. <laughs> but Flowers, they were, despite their lack of international success compared to what they might have wanted, you know, they're on the crest of a wave. Ivor has the perfect ensemble. They've written the, you know, an almost perfect pop album. The band so is tight. The band is tight. Rehearsed. Future could barely look rosier. So what, what, what do you does do? he choose to do? Sack the band. <laughs> Go on your own because you're Ivor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, he had he had the means, basically. He, he did. did. He did, but he also had the motive. <laughs> means, motive and opportunity. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I was going to say, he came back to Australia uh, as just Ice House. They had to ditch the name Flowers because there was a Scottish band right. called yep. The Flowers. Yep. So they came back and released uh, a single in 81 called Love yep. in Motion, which was a great song and a top ten hit again, I think, in Australia. Yep. Which he pretty much played and recorded himself. Mm, yep, including song. the drums, I, I think. think it would have been a drum machine on, on oh, that okay. one, yeah. Pretty sure. Yeah, he, he, would have, he would have had a Lindrum at that point. Yeah, he would he have, have moved on. He had the Lindrum at that stage. but uh, There was something on really? there. You, you've seen his receipts? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he did not buy the Lindrum until yes. too. Um, interesting side note, Graham and I did a remix of that song, Love in Motion, maybe 10 or 12 years later. Fine remix it was too. It's a fine tune, and we did a good job with it. We we had the master tapes thanks to Ivor. Thank you, and um, yeah. We, so we did so that. you requested. Well, we did. Of we, were, Ivor. we were friends with the people that owned the studio that Ivor recorded in, and so we were able to get them and, and do it there. And they they alerted you to the fact that this tape was sitting around. 
I think we asked about it. It was fine. Okay, Probably. So, so you knew the song had been recorded at this studio, so I, it wasn't recorded there. They had access to okay. the master tapes because Ivor recorded there regularly. So he may have brought them in. I'm not right, sure, okay. quite sure how it yeah. worked, but um, yeah, it's it's a great version. I think you'll yeah, you'll yeah, all agree. Yeah. Well, I was certainly impressed by Love in Motion, despite the fact that some said there were echoes of another song. Oh yes, there was. Are you familiar with David Essex? Yes. Are you familiar with a song called Rock On? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and for my third question, um, no, there, there was the melody from Rock On that um, he appropriated, I guess you could say. But um, it wasn't based on that song. It wasn't like he... There were definitely similarities. But, but, but it's, 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 a brief, it's a brief snippet, though. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of love in motion that doesn't sound like Rock On. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it, it was a, it was well, a, almost your honour. Let me show you exhibit A. I think uh, it was a nice little melody that he, he utilised very mm. tastefully and um, it made the song as far as I can see. So, um, like, he has been accused, I guess, of doing this kind of thing on occasion, either appropriating a melody here and there or adopting uh, yeah, a, a, a mannerism, a vocal mm. style. But to me, that's just part of Ivor, you know. There's also a lot of him in his yeah. songwriting yeah. as well. Well, he does good versions of things. I think you, mm. you were talking about the Lou Reed version. Yeah, the Lou Reed version oh, that's of a "Not My Kind" is the, no, nothing to do from the first album, which yeah. is very Lou Reed. And uh, yeah, yeah. Well, in, in later years, I thought "Taking the Town" had a bit of Bowie. Yeah, I think everything he, he's it? ever done has had a lot of Bowie, <laughs> and mm. he'd be the first mm. to admit that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether it was Sidewalk or Measure for Measure, but there was a song that sounded like T Rex. It was uh, "Baby You're So Strange." Baby, you're so strange. Yeah. 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 But, but once again, I think he was doing an obvious glam tribute there, yeah. I guess. Well, when I heard Love in Motion, um, the original, although the remix is excellent, <laughs> um, I, I remember just absolutely loving the song. And then I bought the single and the B-side, Goodnight Mr Matthews, was kind of almost every bit as good and could easily have been a single in its own right. And it shows that Ivor was on such a roll and that he was so far from being a one-hit wonder. And mm. he had ditched his entire band, and he this was is a year out with this after stuff. the first album. Yeah, yeah, that's you right. Know, pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just showed what an extraordinary talent he was for that particular type of song. And uh, then, of course, it was time for Primitive Man to make an album. Yeah, which he pretty much, as as we know, did on his own. Yeah. Re- recorded it, played it in in his studio in Sydney in Leichhardt. I think we decided, didn't we? Mm. With the, yeah, kind of uh, the home studio kind yeah, of Yeah, with the flight path noises, the bus flight, out, yep, the stop, bus stop There was a bus stop out the front. He mm. was dealing yep. with all manner of public transport. He was, he was. <laughs> and you can hear the sounds of buses, the bell of the bus, the wheels of the bus. Going round and round. They're all there in the background. If you listen if carefully, you listen carefully to the remastered to Hey version. Little Girl, you can hear the sounds of the... I wish I knew what bus it was. <laughs> Tickets, please. <laughs> please move down. <laughs> it's a 384 from my car. <laughs> yeah. 
It was, uh, and it was co-produced by Keith Forsey, who later worked with Billy Idol and co-wrote Don't You Forget About Me, Simple Mind Song and Flashdance. Well, this is what I'm wondering whether Keith Forsey was, was the person that, that had recorded all the drums on the album, ah. played all the drums on the album himself uh, against Ivor's wishes. Mm. And Ivor managed to get hold of the, the master tapes of, of Primitive Man wiped all of the drums and programmed everything with the Lindrum or whatever drum machine he was using yeah. and put them all back the way he wanted, which is the version that we know now. Yeah, yeah. So he had some clout at least to be able to do that. And it, it, it's so much the better for it because it's quite a modernist album for 1982. It sounds yeah, very yeah. slick and of its time and, and really suits what he was trying to do with songs like Great Southern Land, Hey Little Girl, um, Good Night Mr Matthews, as you said, um, Trojan Blue, The Cure... 17 seconds uh, prestige. <laughs> Not in the vocal style, but if you listen to the intro, the guitar, it sounds like Robert Smith's about to come out. And it shows an extraordinary level of self-confidence well, for yeah. Ivor, coming across a pretty well-credentialed producer and just saying, no, I'm not, I'm not having that. We're not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Just, and it was a hit. It. it was a, it was actually internationally a bit of a hit too. I yeah, think it, yeah. Did, it did better than the first album did. Yeah, uh, and it's got two. Well, I think Great Southern Land is an absolute classic yep. Aussie yep. song, and I and I think it, Triple M uh, play it regularly, and it's still classed as one of the great yeah, all-time yeah. Australian songs. Well, it's interesting you say that about it being classified as a great Australian song because you're going to disagree with me. <laughs> well, Ivor did an interview in 1983 where he said that the song had nothing to do with Australia at all, that in fact it was set in a fictional land and that it was inspired partly by South Africa, which was under the apartheid regime at the time, and the more segregated states of the United States of America. And if you listen to the lyrics of that song, they are very much about racial division and not being able to kind of find a way past the racial division. And certainly there are references to harbours and to countries that are what, hidden in the summer for a million years, etc. But it does feel much more like a song about racial issues than it is a celebration of how big Australia is or, you know, however else the song has, has come to be regarded. And it's kind of interesting that in later years, Ivor, possibly buckling under the weight of expectation, spoke about the song in terms of, you know, he, he missed Australia and wrote it as a kind of a tribute of sorts. Oh, are you saying that he actually changed his mind on... After his third house well, was bought by the song, he changed his <laughs> well, this mind. Well, I'm just raising it as a discussion topic, really. Well, if he said it, it's possibly quite true. He may have revised his opinion on it. Yeah, well, songs do evolve even in a songwriter's thinking mm. and that you can realise further down the track what a song is about. And he was certainly leaving himself wide open to the song being considered to be about Australia when he writes a song called Great Southern Land. So it's not it's not surprising. Well, I do remember when Great Southern Land came out as a single. It did well, like number five or something, but I don't remember people talking about it as an Aussie classic or anything along those lines. It was just a good song, which which is doing well. And its kind of classic status has been conferred as the decades have passed and it's almost as if we need, as, as Australians, to have Aussie classic songs, you know, whether it's a song by Ganga Jang, Sounds of Them. Sounds of Them, yeah. Um, or I Still Call Australia Home 
or whatever, as Down if we under. don't have enough of a musical heritage, so we need to kind of... We need validation, Patrick. Yes. Constant <laughs> validation. Yes, well, I think that's, that's quite possibly true. So, as you say, the album did have a bit of success. Mm. Uh, overseas, Hey Little Girl, I think, got to number 17. Hey, little That was his biggest international hit to, to that point. Mm, yeah, yeah. So he'd certainly done well. And again, it was it was a sound that just felt international class to me. It felt, well, it like, felt like it right. could easily have been that, huge. Yeah, mm. that album felt right for 1982 in the same way the first album felt right for 1980. Yeah. I think they both stood the test of time yeah. uh, in listening to them now, certainly uh, more so than the later stuff. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, which uh, brings us to probably Sidewalk. It was two years later, which is quite a long time. Yes. And probably where we would leave flowers. Are we going to do sidewalk? No, I don't think we're going to. That's where the mullet started growing, Graham. I think your theory about the longer the mullet, the worse the music is. Did we get to your mullet theory? I just think that the mullet theory... um, What is your uh, mullet theory, Graham? Well, I think there's an uh, inverse correlation between the length of someone's mullet and the quality of their music. So Ivor Davies had a very short haircut and did some wonderful music, and as his hair grew longer the music wasn't quite as great. And I, I point to Simple Minds and uh, maybe even you too. Definitely uh, you too. Right. But, uh, but, but, what yeah. about Def Leppard? Where do they sit in there? <laughs> Some of their best work was was with the mullet. And the elephant in the room, the elephant in the room is Billy Ray Cyrus. Yeah. Well, well yeah. You can't have any discussion about post-punk without bringing up Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> but no, but I... You can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to try. But if you're talking about someone at their creative peak, you're talking achy, breaky heart, and I don't know whether his mullet got longer in subsequent years. I thought Miley would have been his creative peak. (laughs) His his best production. (laughs) I think, um, I don't know, my theory probably doesn't stand up to all genres. It's it's working pretty well. It doesn't have to be based in fact. Mm. Um, No problem. It's just a theory. Yeah, we haven't let facts get in the way in previous podcasts. And and nor will we, ever. No. No. But uh, I think we can we can safely say that Ice House went on to bigger and not necessarily better things. No, no. Uh, no, it certainly right. had a lot of success and, uh, you know, do what they do. Yes. But I have an interesting side story there about that later success oh, years, yes. a couple of years after this, 1986 I think the year would have been. Uh, Curtis, a friend of mine, was asked to audition for Ice House on the bass to play uh, on the tour for Measure for Measure. Did we decide that was the album? Yes, I think so. Um, he was uh, brought in amongst a few other people to sort of to try out and to play, uh, I think, four songs for Ivor and Bob Kretschmer, which was his, one of his offsiders at the time. Yeah. Um, and uh, as Curtis tells it, Ivor sort of sat him down, you know, played the songs and said to him, so what do you do when you are not, uh, you know, auditioning for Ice House or playing bass? And Curtis told him he was a piano tuner. And uh, Ivor said, well, that's interesting. When I was at the Conservatorium of Music, I considered being a piano tuner. And uh, I spoke to some of the people there. They they said, no, no, Ivor, that, that won't work. Your ear's too good. <laughs> it's too good to be a piano tuner, uh, which Curtis thought was great. So Perfect pitch. Curtis obviously has an adequate ear rather mm, than too good yeah. an ear because he's made a, a very good career out of being a piano tuner. <laughs> Less so the uh, Mediocrity. Bass, yeah, was, mediocrity was is what it's called for. Less so the um, bass player on Ice House. He had a, an interesting experience. Well, any other personal connections? That's, um, you've, you've done the remix, you've got your friend, our friend, who, you know, auditioning for the band. That's uh, uh, Well, both Graham and I knew um, Keith Welsh. 
over the years. Mm. He was the bass player on the first album before he got fired like all of them. <laughs> uh, he ended up managing Ivor and the Angels as well as and Bo- Boom Crash Opera. Uh, Boom Crash Opera. And yeah. the lesser Do Re Mi. Yep. Uh, made quite a successful career out of uh, putting mm. the bass down and, mm. and moving on to that. Yep. Nice guy as well. Right. Yep. Quite a quite a good bass player as, yeah, as well yeah. as I remember. Yeah, there's some great bass songs on the first album. Yeah, not 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 so much on the second album. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, um, yeah, I, I think I should, uh, I'd also like to point out that on 2010, I went and saw Ice House play the first album live at Home Bake which is a festival of uh, local bands. But wasn't the gig actually in Homebush anyway? No, Didn't no. they play at the showgrounds? It was at Domain. Oh, okay. And um, it was quite an emotional evening for me because I was reminded about, A, how much I love that first Ice House album. And Keith came up and played bass on Fat Man and maybe Can't Help Myself. Didn't he play the whole time? No. no. The Ice House band were the new Ice House band. Whoever, whoever those guys are. Bob Kretschmer is still there, but oh, okay. uh, there's a, uh, a bass player who's been with them for a while. Andy Kunter? Uh, no, not him. There was a keyboard player who was very young. He, he looked about 25 or something, right. who was very talented. But uh, watching them play that first album, I was immediately transported back to yeah, 79, yeah. 80, yep. and uh, seeing them support any number of bands that toured Australia at the time. You weren't tempted to go up to Keith and ask him what went wrong, <laughs> as, as you had done years right. before. Mark is making reference to a, uh, a moment in the Mansfield Tavern. It was in That's what must have been, it was 1985, and we went and saw... Mansfield uh, Tavern being... Uh, in, uh, a, a beer barn in Brisbane. A beer barn in Brisbane, yes. And um, the bands that we went and saw were Dare Me, who Keith was, was managing. managing. The support band were the Mullanes, who went yep. on, went on yep. to be Crowded House. And Colin was uh, there with Keith and said, oh, this is Graham, and he introduced the two of us. Colin was playing keyboards for Dare Me. For Dare Me, yes. Our friend yeah. Colin. Yeah. Very good friend of mine. And, and uh, friend Colin. <laughs> And I went up to uh, Keith and I said, uh, uh, so Ice House, what the hell happened there? <laughs> <laughs> I and think that's great. Even now I just uh, cringe at the fact that I said that. But what, did it, what was his response? Well, he handled it. flowers. He handled yeah. it very well. And he said when you're a, he struck you. a, an artist. <laughs> he challenged you to a duel. And when I got up off the floor, <laughs> um, he, he said uh, when you're an artist of Ivor's talent, then him going solo was an inevitability, which is what he, which is a, a nice way for him to respond to my rather rude question. Of <laughs> I thought it was a valid question. <laughs> it's what, more, what the well, hell it's more about you? the tone, really, than, yeah. the, uh, than anything. <laughs> like else. if you'd said it as you were laughing, that would have been you know rude. Yeah, if you were pointing and laughing, yeah, yeah, and making the loser sign, <laughs> but you didn't do that. So I, I think it's a fair question to say, what the hell happened? Mm, yeah, as we yeah. said, he, he basically had, was the peak of his success to that date and just got mm. rid of everybody and went, I'm just going to do everything on my yeah, own, which he's yeah. pretty much, it's been Ivor Davies and backing musicians ever since. Mm. There has been no real continuity of a band and I no. imagine he writes everything on his own as well. But I remember seeing Ice House in 1982 at the Palais Theatre in Melbourne and he had assembled a band with... Uh, like this English fellow who's about 20 or 21 years old on bass, Guy Pratt, who who ended up playing with, with Pink Floyd. Mm, um, a lot of people. He had uh, Andy Kunter on keyboards who ended up co-writing You're the Voice. Um, so, you know, it was a pretty decently credentialed band that he assembled in a live context anyway as kind of Ice House Part 2. So 
it's hard on kind of any level to say that he was wrong to make that decision. Oh, no, I don't think he was wrong. It just says something about how he operates and the sort of uh, singular talent that he is that he doesn't Mm. feel that he needs anybody else, which would bring back to what we said before. He hasn't done anything as good as the first and second album ever since. (laughs) Maybe he should get the band back together. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And having Mm. spoken about Sydney's arguably finest post-punk band of that era, certainly from a kind of a pop context, we could move on to Melbourne's arguably finest exponents of a, of a similar, albeit different musical style, the models. Or models. Or the models. Or models. <laughs> I don't think we should go on until we find out whether they were called models well, we or talk, the models. <laughs> we talked about that. They are called models, but as you said, uh, the band over time started to refer to themselves as the models. So I think both are acceptable. Yes, yes. Well, James Freud, in his first memoir, The Voice Left From Drinking, described the fact that the, the official proper name of the band was Models, but because everyone called them the Models, that they eventually kind of gave in and started calling themselves the Models. And in fact, in that book, he does call the band models. See, I'd contend that James Freud should have no opinion on this. Really? Because by the time he joined the models, they were, I've just done it, <laughs> they weren't <laughs> models anymore. Yeah. They were well, something I else. I contend that in fact the beginning of the models was a sunny day. It was a sunny day, I recall, uh, when James Freud and Sean Kelly were 13 years old. First year of high school? Um, quite possibly. And Sean sits down beside James Freud in class. They've never met. They sit down together. The first thing James ever said to Sean Kelly was, what do you think of my hair? And that sets the tone. from such unpromising <laughs> foundation. Humble beginning. Well, <laughs> yes. What's James Freud's real name? Uh, Colin McGlinchey. I was going to say, would he be next to um, Kelly in the alphabet, which is why they were sitting next to each other, but no. Oh, no, 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 that's you right. You know how school K- was arranged right. like L-M. that? Not far away. No, yeah. not far, no. Um, James actually took on the surname Freud because he had a cat of that name, Freud. (laughs) (laughs) You sure he wasn't an Asian cat and his name was Floyd? That makes more sense. Why why did he want to be named after a cat? (laughs) Well, it wasn't so much that that he he decided to name himself after a cat. It was the fact that he liked the name Freud. That was oh. the name of the cat in the share house. In fact, I think he was living in a share house with Sean Kelly two or three years down the track from their initial unpromising meeting. Um, <laughs> so you're saying they met at school and decided that yes. the, the music was the future music and was the thing slumber for them parties and they, were the way to go? They formed, yes, they formed a glam, quite possibly glam-influenced band that played its first gig, I think, at James's sister's slumber party. What where year they, would this have been? Well, they were maybe 16, so when would that have been? 76, 76-ish. Yes, and then they formed a band called Teenage Radio Stars, which got onto Countdown. I want to be your baby They were. I know they were on a compilation of um, Melbourne. Was it the su- suicide suicide label? Label. Yeah. I think the Boys Next Door, Future Birthday Party were on there as well. It was a compilation right, okay. of yep. Melbourne bands, and they were on that. So that's possibly the song. Yep. Yep. If and I'd have done any research on it, I could tell. Oh, no, that's very good. Then James decided he wanted to go solo. So he took his radio stars with him. Leaving. He picked up his radio stars <laughs> and left. Shades of Ivor Davies. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. Leaving Sean, Sean on his, on his own yeah. uh, to form a band called either Models or The Models. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't worked out which With yet. a an, an array. <laughs> an array a, of musicians. An array of musicians, a conveyor belt of musicians, including <laughs> such, <laughs> such unusual Melbourneian type S- names. Such luminaries as... 
Johnny Crash, uh, Pierre Voltaire, Ash Wednesday. Uh, th- these have to be Melbourne musicians. Only really Melbourne musicians would come up with names like Crash and Voltaire. And Wednesday. And Wednesday, yes. <laughs> that was, to say nothing that of, was of Pierre Voltaire. Mr and Mrs Wednesday's youngest. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Pierre Voltaire, who later... Uh, reached some level of national prominence when he won half a million dollars on the TV show Million Dollar Minute, I think it was called. Right, a game show. A game show, yes. Right. Um, that, was, that was sometime down the track, but back then he was just humble Pierre Voltaire. <laughs> <laughs> so he, did he, what, he reverted to his actual name for the prize uh, for the uh, uh, game show? I th- he may have taken on the name Pierre Sutcliffe by that stage, oh. which was his original surname as I understand it and a francophone version of his actual name. So I, I believe his real name was Peter Sutcliffe and in the late 1970s that wasn't Necessarily the best name to have, no. courtesy of the Yorkshire Ripper, mm. who had who had his own albums. Out who, of this <laughs> <laughs> so much like Flowers and Ice House, there was a requirement to uh, change. So he had to change his name. Taste. Well, Fred, yes. Fred West was available. He could have taken that. There were other options. <laughs> yeah. But Pierre Voltaire, it was Pierre Voltaire, it was yes. And there was quite the um, the conveyor belt of band members, even in the earliest days of the models. So I'm not sure exactly how many uh, band member changes they'd had prior to the release of their first independently released single, which was called Early Morning Brain. But they did a kind of a double A-side with them doing one of the A-sides and Boys Next Door were on the other side of the single, which is a pretty amazing um, Mm. record to Mm. have out there. So Models and the band that, that became The Birthday Party. And it didn't go to number one on the charts. <laughs> it wasn't an immediate hit. <laughs> it wasn't an immediate hit. And that was October 1979, just to give some kind of context. And they so, formed in 78, so that's a year or so after. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And they'd already had a few band member changes. I'm just looking at my notes here. Pierre had been replaced by Mark Ferry. And oh, Ash Wednesday had been replaced by Andrew Duffield. Aha, uh-huh. so they're two core members right Yes, there. yes. So that, they were beginning to take shape uh, into the, the models who we came to know and love for their first album released in 1980. Which was Al- Alpha, Bravo. Alpha. Do the whole title. I'll I'll get it. Shall I do the whole thing? Uh, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo, Foxtrot, Golf, which is called strangely um, the phonetic alphabet. But there's there's nothing. An American military. Yeah, American military. There's nothing phonetic about it at all, but for some reason it's referred to as the phonetic alphabet. Right, yep. Um, And uh, it it was quite a long title, but it, it was a wonderful album. And if we're talking about differences between Melbourne and Sydney bands, I think we've found something pretty fundamental there. <laughs> yes. And uh, one, one of the things that I really liked about the idea of talking about flowers or ice house and models was the very strong kind of delineation between one as a Sydney band and the other as a Melbourne band. And could you imagine Ivor Davies choosing such an ungainly album title? Yes. No. As no, that, no, and it was, it was almost deliberately kind of sabotaging the commercial prospects of an album to call it Alpha Bravo Charla Delta Echo, Echo Foxtrot Golf. Uh, mind you, Midnight Oil, a Sydney band. I'm about to ruin everything by talking about their <laughs> album. Ten nine eight seven six five four three two one. 
Mm. But, uh, yes, and uh, following on from something I mentioned earlier about uh, Bob Yates, the booker for the Civic Hotel in Sydney, uh, something he mentioned, a difference he mentioned between the Melbourne and Sydney bands was the posters that the various bands from those cities used to come up with. The Melbourne bands, he would see the posters that they would want used and you'd barely be able to see the name of the band amidst the squiggles of artwork and lines of poetry and whatever else and letters shaped as animals or whatever whatever it might be. <laughs> and he found that quite a striking contrast with the Sydney bands who mentioned on their posters the name of the band and the venue and the date of the gig. No nonsense. <laughs> no. Straight to the <laughs> Which point. Which seems a strangely practical approach now that I think of it as a former Melbourneian myself that, yeah, you probably want that stuff on the poster. <laughs> Melbourne's the land of poetry and art and, and Sydney <laughs> is, as we yes. know, Sydney We're is more practical. That's right. <laughs> That's, right. Mm. That's right. So, and it was, um, as as you're saying, Graham, an extraordinary album, wasn't it, Alpha Bravo? It was. It, it was really good. I remember when I, when I first heard it. The, the sound of Sean Kelly's voice for a start. It's very unusual. It was very unusual. It's a real growl. I, I've never heard anyone sing like that before. Or strangled probably. vocals, yeah, I think, is a lot of the strangled references. Yeah. Well, the guitar on it's really interesting because it's kind of almost like a surf guitar kind of sound. The bass, Mark Ferry's bass, is really prominent and strong in the mix. Andrew Duffield's keyboard's easily the most interesting keyboard player Australia's ever thrown up and was playing some amazing stuff. some great stuff, yeah. Yeah, Mm. amazing. And a really powerful sounding album, really clean, kind of independently recorded. They did it themselves and paid for it all themselves, I think, with with Tony Cohen producing it. Yeah. Who recently passed away. Although officially, yeah, yeah, Um, RIP. Yeah, and (laughs) they they was put out on uh, Mushroom uh, as a release, but uh, in July, uh, sorry, November eighty. Uh, but it certainly was unusual. Mm. Uh, so, uh, just just a note regarding the, the production. I think on the album it might have said that it was produced by nobody. Yeah, but it was actually him. Mm. Uh, it, I like it, that as an official production credit though. Well, the only reason I mentioned Tony Cohen is he was a bit of a luminary in the post-punk Absolutely. scene in Australia. He did the birthday party, lots of stuff for them and, and other lesser lights, but he had the, the studio there that he um, the bands would come in and use. Um, I was going to say the songs like Two People Per Square Kilometre, Young Rodents, Happy Birthday IBM, great songs, really strong songs, weird lyrics, not as commercial as, say, the Flowers <laughs> debut but, album. But Two Persons Per Square Kilometre, I remember seeing that on Countdown. Yeah, and they did a film clip for it as well. It's a great film clip. Is it the film clip where they're playing and they just keep walking off the set? <laughs> yeah. The bit that I saw on Countdown, I remember Sean Kelly singing into the microphone and his, his legs were crossed for some reason. It, it was a very awkward way he was standing. But, um, but I remember at the time thinking that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Elvis Costello <laughs> stole that. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was more peasantated, but this, he'd, he'd gone even further. He'd gone the whole way. <laughs> the whole way. It was just a, a really odd way for, for a musician to stand. But um, yeah. as far as I was concerned, it, it was a million miles away from the way Robert yeah. Plant would stand, so that was fine yeah. by me. <laughs> Well, they, they seem determined to have no success with the album mm. because they, they not only had one of the longest album titles in Australian music history, they declined to release a single from it, which was a pretty extraordinary thing given how many poppy songs were on, well, yeah, I mean, uh, on the album. I mean, I guess to, to a certain extent, having as your featured song a song with the title Two People Per Square Kilometre, it, <laughs> it does suggest a certain... Doesn't sound um, that exciting. No, no. And, and what does it refer to? 
That's a good question. I well, think it, I think it's about great southern lands. It's about <laughs> Australia, yeah, as in uh, the uh, population <laughs> right. density at the time, though that's it's probably right. 20 people per square kilometre mm. these days. Yeah, mm. that's true. But they... Their, their lyrical content was was kind of interesting as well because there were certain songs that were really uh, lyrically snappy and poppy. The pull the pin about um, she she was knitting me a sweater but she hadn't finished yet. That's right. Which is really funny, quirky, and kind of like boy meets girl kind of stuff. That was but, an Andrew Duffield one. I think he's saying that. I think. Okay. Yep. Um, but equally, there were songs like um, Twenty One Hertz. The, the opening track or the second track, where it's a song about air traffic control, as far as I can tell. <laughs> um, all the way, that's okay, error in your favour. And I thought it was Bombs Away. Was it? Yeah, well, it's certainly a plane featured. Okay, well, yeah. So had that song not been about air traffic control, it could easily have been a hit had it been a single. Which they, <laughs> which they wouldn't do. <laughs> that's right. And it was almost as if they were fighting their instincts because they knew how good they were at writing pop songs, so they were doing everything they could to kind of battle. Sabotage it. Well, that's very post-punk, isn't it? It's, yeah, yeah. There were bands like New Order yeah. and so on and Joy Division yeah. doing the same sorts of things. Nobody wanted to look like they wanted to be successful. No, no. That was well, the key Particularly in Melbourne. So I'm not sure whether it was, it was different in Sydney because, <laughs> yeah, yeah. because Flowers seemed quite happy to have hit singles and even though they didn't release Sister, which is arguably the poppiest song on the Ice House album, they were shamelessly on Countdown and, I mean, as models were, but there was an interesting dichotomy between Flowers and Models, the different approach they took to their first mm. album. Well, at the same time, yeah, Models certainly went down that path later of trying to have success, but certainly in 1980 they were avoiding it at all costs Yeah, yeah. despite mm. having a very catchy, well, the, well-produced album. They had on Cut Lunch there was a song called Atlantic Romantic, which people loved. I remember and the radio station in Brisbane used to play it all the time on Jules mm. Z. However, they rarely played it live. Yeah. And I remember sometimes uh, we went and saw them at East Leeds Club, I think, and um, Sean Kelly went up to the microphone and said, this next one's called Atlantic Romantic, but they didn't play it. So it, was, <laughs> it was like he was taunting them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Here's oh, this song was... that you all love, we're not going to play it. <laughs> well, that was from Cut Lunch, which was, what, about eight, nine months later, July 81. Yeah. I think yeah. they went to the UK... Yeah. On Alpha Bravo, tried to sort of, you know, make something of that didn't happen, did the usual yep. Australians in London, yep. living in misery and poverty, and yeah. um, recorded the second album, which was local and or general, and enough tracks which were left over for Cut Lunch, I yep. think, that were, were released on the EP of Cut Lunch, which was also a 10-inch EP. Hmm. As was the fashion Thing. At the time, yeah. Sports um, was another band. Yeah, that, it was that a th- had well, you had that the, the, the thicker vinyl. Jojo's up and the Falcons might have done it. Yeah. So, so Better a lot sound. of Australian bands were doing. Was it a mushroom? Were they doing a bit of it? Yeah, Although, well, it wasn't just him. Flower, flowers did it as well. It was big it? in England at the time as well. Yeah. But that was a six-track EP: uh, Atlantic Romantic, Man of Action, Man of Action, yeah, great song, great Cut song. Lunch. I think Man of Action featured again redone on Local and or General. Yeah. Later that year. Well, Cut Lunch had. Two kind of bona fide hit songs on it, I think, with two cabs to the two can as well. Oh, I that was yes, great. Song. Both, was. B- both of those songs are just really infectious songs. And, and a great video, too. Yeah, yeah. If ever you see Yeah, it. yeah, that's right. <laughs> they seem to be in a pub singing with uh, all these old oh, yeah, yeah. These yeah, old, with the old locals. All the old locals, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who probably wouldn't have liked this song normally, but. Uh, no, that's yeah. right. It was, it was an right. odd film clip. So for them to release this six-track EP in a slightly throwaway way as well. So again, with no single. I 
think it might have charted, though. It might have done, To yeah. some degree, yeah, maybe yeah, top yeah. 30 or 40. They released a kind of a mini film. Yes, yes. At the time, which had a, a bit of every song, which yeah. was quite weird. Yeah. And I think they showed it in cinemas, some cinemas, yeah. probably Melbourne cinemas. <laughs> and um, yeah, no <laughs> it, Just Melbourne cinemas. Yeah, it was kind of an extended, you know, ad yeah, yeah. for the EP, yeah, was, yeah. which was kind of weird in itself. They kind of links. homemade videos. Yeah. <laughs> And links with Vox Pops, where Mark Ferry yeah. was going around the streets of Melbourne asking people their favourite sandwich topping. That's right. <laughs> and what, and what's the man of action? Are, yeah, are, yeah, you, yeah. are you a man you of action? You look like the man of action. <laughs> he, I see, he, he accosted this street sweeper and asked him who didn't speak any English. And he, the guy was just like trying to get away from him. Leave, leave me alone. I work for the council. I think we've got one just up ahead. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, sir. We're looking for the man of action in Melbourne. Do you have cut lunches? I don't know, I'm not speaking that well. I work up the city council, you know, collect the rabbits. <laughs> I'm not a man of action. I'm not a man council. of action. I'm the opposite of a man of action. <laughs> yeah, well, um, so, but that, that's, that was very Melbourne, wasn't it? That's exactly right. Flowers would not have done that. Flowers would not have done that. Ivor would not have let that happen. <laughs> no, um, no, that's right. But, yeah, that, that, was, that was a great EP, Cut Lunch, um, July 81. So that was their in-between. That was their love in motion. If yes, you that's like. Right. Yeah. And then it was on to local and or general. During the recording of Cut Lunch, uh, James Freud was in the studio. He did, some, in, did he? he did some backing vocals. What was he up to at the time? He was in England with Gary Newman, possibly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he did some backing vocals on, on the Cut Lunch, either, See, which is extraordinary for a future member of the band. Trying to get his head in there. To do he, that. And he, around about the same time, noted Australian rock producer Mark Opitz, um, he was invited to, I think he. He'd worked with bands like The Angels and so some relatively mainstream but slightly left of centre bands like The Angels. And uh, he was asked if he'd think of producing the models, the next album. And in his autobiography, Sophistapunk, he, he talks about this, Opitz, and he doesn't mention the album but he says he listened to the songs and he said there are no songs here. So he was quite adamant about the fact that it was slightly half-baked and he described them in his book as a classic Melbourne band, cool and hip, but more style than substance, <laughs> which is a little hard. Not like the Angels. <laughs> no, well, I will back the Angels. I like the Angels. But um, different stuff. I mean, like the Angels were a kind of a proper, serious rock band. And the models, you could see them you know, viewed from a particular vantage point via a particular lens, you could see them as being a bit kind of flighty and a bit arty, which is how I liked my band. So <laughs> That's where you live. I didn't have a problem with that. And difficult for the sake of being difficult. Well, that was what you could accuse them of, but they were really just trying to do things on their own terms, I think, the models, and, and Sean Kelly in particular. So they just wanted to play music and to play it their way, and that was obviously what they were doing, and local and or general. The band's second album, which came out in, what are we saying, October 1981, oh. was an obvious example of them doing just whatever the hell they wanted to do. Yeah, mm. great songs. And, um, it, and it was great. The title track alone was fantastic. Yeah. Dying for My Country at the War is another great track off yep. that album. Mm. Um, I was going to say Mark Ferry's bass playing on this album is spectacular. Yep. He's on the he's on all of this stuff, uh, the early stuff, and subsequently not. We'll go on to that later. But he's now the, um, the resident bass player on Rockwiz. Rockwiz, Rock, yeah. The ABC television yep. show yep. and has been doing that for some time. He's one of my favourite bass players in Australia. Yep. I think yep. he's right up there. He had such and, a punchy sound. And he's touring with models again. Yeah, he, he does it's, on it's the, good the to reunion see, uh, tours. Um, Sean Kelly, Andrew Duffield and Mark Ferry. It's great to see yeah, the yeah. three of them back together. And do you know the names of all the segments 
on Rock Quiz. I've never watched it. Ah, I've yeah. never seen the show, but I know that's what he does. Well, there's a segment on that show called Local and or General. Oh, oh nice. I didn't, I didn't think that anyone watching that show would know <laughs> well, who, the, who the hell the models were. That album had a strange hospital theme, didn't it? There were songs on there about euthanasia and yeah, all kinds yeah. of odd subject matter. And scientists. Truth the about truth sci- about truth about scientists. That's right. Mm. Because once you know the truth about scientists, you want <laughs> yeah. to know the truth about the truth about scientists. The real truth. It may be a fabrication. Mm, that's right. So, and, don't, and they went there. And something else which so I'm, I keep having Ivor Davies in my head while I'm thinking about the Models albums, but uh, I think there's a recital of the periodic table yes, in the there, songs there Truth About Truth About Scientists. So it's carbon, nitrogen, etc. And again, I'm finding it hard to picture Ivor singing that mm. on Countdown. There's also a nice little, um, and this will interest you guys, a, a guy reading out his dating profile. Yes. Um, yes. Nice so. man, slim. Some say nice looking, looking, medium built, reasonable appearance, quiet, sensitive, creative, practical, intelligent, eclectic, music lover, absent-minded, untidy. <laughs> the, and he, I think it's Andrew Duffield by the sound of it. It's actually Rupert Hine. You're kidding. No. Really? That's Rupert so, Hyde. Yeah, so the album was recorded at his studio even though he didn't produce it. His his engineer, Stephen Taylor, produced it. Right, and they just happened to record Rupert reading out his ad. Yeah. Unbeknownst to him, they put it on the album. So <laughs> <laughs> it was an ad that they found somewhere which they asked Rupert to, to it's a great. It's a great ad. It's very, very funny. Mm, it is. <laughs> it was his J-Date profile. It is. The, the great thing about the title track, Local and or General, is that like when I first heard it, it sounded like that there was no real form to it. It was like there was a consistent kick drum throughout it, but uh, it just seemed to be Sean Kelly mumbling stuff in, into a microphone. And then all of a sudden a chorus, or like a quite commercial chorus would chorus kick in. Chorus is huge, yeah. And, uh, and then that would go for a little while, and then it would fall back into this sort of freeform <laughs> jazz type of thing. And um, Write some verses, guys. Yeah. And uh, a couple of years ago, the three of us went and saw the models at Marrickville and um, they played Local Lando General and they stuffed it up, mm, if, if, yeah, you, if yeah, you remember. Yeah. And I remember at the time thinking, well, I, I can completely understand why they stuffed it up because if I was playing it, I wouldn't know when the chorus yeah, comes yeah, in that's either. Right. That's it, right. I remember they actually had to stop and uh, Mark Ferry counted the band back in for the chorus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, a really odd song, but I love it. It's one of my favourites of them. Single. Yeah, it was because I, I had despite the, their, might have been their the only wishes. single. Yeah, yeah I think it that. was. It's quite as catchy as Granted, the chorus is killer. There's nothing else really going on in it. No, song. no, that's right. But but, but again, the, the kind of um, recalcitrance of the band that on the Cut Lunch EP, there are two classic singles pop songs. Mm. And then once they finally get around to releasing their first ever single, I think, it's a song which is about 70% instrumental, <laughs> which, which has. And it's about hospitals or something. It certainly seems to be about it. Yeah, it could well be. Who knows? Well, there is we, the, can, we can speculate along those lines at yeah. least. There is that wonderful line at the end where he says, um, euthanasia in the staff room. Oh, On the intern's mind. On the intern's mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that an encephalogram? <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the lines, yeah. Great stuff. 
Well, I, I think it's a peak moment for Australian post-punk. Those those two albums, I think Local mm. and or General is is the peak moment for, for models. Yeah. Yeah. It really is everything. And I, I can listen to it now still. I think it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. The sound of it is still very modern as well. Yeah. And, and it almost has a, this is a little bit out of left field probably, but it almost feels a little bit like a concept album to me because it's got... Sp- Pop songs and then links as well from from one song to another and mm. and it does have a kind of a strong thematic quality to me. Mm. So I'm I'm going to call it their Sergeant Peppers. <laughs> I wonder why they included Man of Action again on it. The only track off Cut Lunch they they re-recorded yeah it on local and or general and put it on that again. Yeah, uh, three months later. Yeah, whatever it was. They just it loved it. it. Doesn't make any <laughs> like, sense. This song is so good. Let's put it on each subsequent album <laughs> for, yeah, the, yeah. for the rest of our career. Well, th- th- once again, this is a point where they didn't do anything then for another for another couple of years after yeah. this. So I think the band kind of fell apart after this album. To now, a well, the, this this is this is where you and I are going to part ways. Mark. Again, well, I, I will say that there was two years uh, between Local and or General and the third album. There was a single. There was a single called On. Yes. Um, but that still is the point where I think um, Mark Ferry had left and I think yes. Andrew Duffield was either about to leave or had left. I think he, he might have even left and come back yeah. around that time. But I think he played On, On. Um, I think Mark Ferry had gone by then and I think On was James Freud's debut. Funnily enough, Mark Ferry, when he left the band, released Unhappy as a single under his own name. Well, Andrew Duffield released his EP, Ten Happy Fingers, or whatever yeah, it was. It was a, it was a full, full album. It was an album, so yeah. therefore he yeah. had a whole bunch of stuff he wanted to use and wasn't, yeah, wasn't yeah. getting on there. So yeah. Yeah. the band, like I said, to me, the band fell apart after Local and or General. They may have come back together in certain ways, but yeah. that yeah. was the beginning of the end of that period. I think we can agree on that. Oh, yes, it yeah. was well, definitely the end of that period. They were, they were actually a five-piece band when they recorded on. Right. They had Gr- and that didn't Graham feature Scott on drums. That John, wasn't John on Roll, any album. John Roll on guitar. No. Oh, okay. Um, and the Freud Kelly Duffield axis. What year did that come out? That was eighty-two. Eighty-two. So that's the only thing they did for two years. The two years between yep. those albums. Yep. So that's that's obviously a band in a bit of a crisis. Mm. You'd have to say. Yes, I'm not sure exactly what they were doing. Well, we know that James in Freud had, had washed up back in Australia after his... Um, his failed his, solo album. His failed solo album. With Gary Newman. I do remember Curtis and Colin telling me that they were in Sydney in around 83 and went to the local uh, hostelry, may have been um, Camaray, somewhere over there, I can't remember what it was, to see the models play ah. um, after a long absence. And they were horrified to see James Freud on stage uh-huh with them sporting this ridiculous-looking mohawk that he'd picked up in London while he was there. And you, <laughs> and a lot of people, a lot of Models fans were not happy, yeah, yeah, were not impressed well, with the fact that he was we, now in the band. We, we probably felt the same way. Absolutely, yeah. Even though he started the Models, let's face it. Well, he mm. met Sean at school. <laughs> I don't know about that. But, yeah, he'd done the whole um, modern girl thing. He was, a, he was seen as a bit of a... Bit of a loser. He he tried very hard to, to be, a, be pop a pop star. Very yeah. very very hard. So yeah. for him now to be, it seemed that that he was pretending to have street cred or trying to kind of somehow yeah. fake it. The whole look, the fact that he was playing bass, he'd not played bass before in anything that we'd ever seen him do. He played mm. guitar to some degree. Now he's the bass player in the models. 
And yeah, look, fans of the band uh, certainly weren't impressed, and, and certainly Colin and Curtis weren't impressed. I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which um, okay, which brings us to the third album where we would part company, Graham. Pleasure of your company. Released in October '83, mm-hmm. produced, overproduced by Nick Launay. There he is oh, again, our a- mate from Flowers of Romance, Public Image. Um, Nick was a big fan of the gated snare, gated drum sounds. Had big he fan. recorded Midnight Oil's Ten to One album by then? I don't think he had by I thought then. Thought he might have. It may have been in the same period, but the sound yeah. definitely carried over. He had, he had made a sound for himself that he picked up while working at Townhouse uh, with. Um, Hugh Padgham and um, Steve Lillywhite because he was a junior engineer, assistant engineer there. And that sound, which we know sort of dominated the 80s, uh, was was formed there. So Pleasure of Your Company bears his stamp all over Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And it's, listening to it now, I find it hard to listen to. It's just so... From from beginning to end? You don't, yeah. You don't like it's it? very compressed and very thick and of its time, whereas the first two albums prior to this sound clean and, and really, yeah. really nicely done. But it did yield their first hit single, which was I Hear Motion. And it was a reasonably sized hit. Might have been top 10 in Australia, I'm not sure. Just maybe maybe not, 15. Yeah. Just outside the yeah, top 10. Yeah, maybe outside. Yeah. But it was a big moment for them. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. they definitely made a decision to become, a, you know, a successful chart act. I think we can agree on that. I think they definitely wanted to um, produce something a bit more accessible, I guess. Yeah. Well, after the previous two albums where they'd gone out of the way not to. <laughs> not to, yeah. yeah. I mean, the song itself is a catchy song, the keyboard line is reminiscent of Superstition, Stevie Wonder, which is what Andrew Duffield said he was trying to emulate. Um, Certainly other songs on the album weren't quite as commercial, like um, God Bless America. Yeah, Yeah, No Shoulders, No Head, God Bless America. Good songs, fine songs. Holy Creation. Holy Creation. Sang the Butcher. I love those songs. Well, I think this album is great as a kind of bridge album between the earlier experimental albums and the later sort of pop-infused records. I thought this was a really good kind of transitional album. And uh, it was still experimental to a point, but they started to recognise the importance of melody, I guess. Yeah. Even though um, their first couple of albums, you know, had a lot of melodies on them. Uh, It it just seemed a little bit more disciplined. Um, Do you think that it sounds dated now? When I listen to this album, I struggle to listen to it. It's such an 80s sound, it's, and it sounds yeah. a lot like the In Excess album, The Swing, which was also which produced also by, did, by him. And the Machinations album, which he also did. Yeah. Yep. The and, Not All and, albums. And all the international, like the. Yeah. That, that's just the Australian albums he did. Mm. That's and right. That's it it right. kind of became the sound for the 80s, and it's almost the, the cliche to describe. That, that kind of drum sound. Oh, as, everything's very compressed as well. It's very yeah. hard to hear anything in yeah. there, that what, what's going on. I mean, look, I think Nick Lorne is a fantastic producer. Did, Definitely. He did follow the leader and Killing Joke, early Killing Joke stuff, which is amazing, still sounds amazing. Gang of Four, all kinds of things. He's got, you know, credentials coming out of his ass. But this album doesn't stack up to the previous albums for me and it's it's where I think that the, the mullet period began for the models <laughs> going back to your earlier going, going going to the, my, mullet era, the mullet yes. era um yeah theory. i mean certainly they had bigger bigger success than this album uh without a mind out of sight well ironically given what you're saying about pleasure of your company and its commercialness 
um, Andrew Duffield quit the band after Pleasure of Your Company, according to James Freud, because they all wanted to be pop stars and he... (laughs) And he wanted, and again I'm quoting James Freud, uh, Andrew Duffield wanted to maintain artistic credibility and the approval of his peers, <laughs> which is I like it's, it. It's it's kind of like a it, is it veiled criticism or is it just criticism? It's, it's a bit hard. It's a, bit it's hard a very Melbourne thing. <laughs> it's a very Sydney analysis of a Melbourne thing. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so where do we sit at the end of this in terms of uh, Sydney versus Melbourne? Who wins? Who who won this round? Who won this round? Well, I would probably listen more to the first two Models albums than I would to the first two Ice House albums, which, which is not at all to, to, to criticise. How have they stood up to, you know, going back to? I think the first two Models albums don't sound like 80s albums to me in the same very specific way that I can hear Ultravox and I can hear Gary Newman and so on like as recent influences on the first couple of, like, the first two Ice House albums, Mm. whereas Models feels a bit more kind of timeless because their influences were so strange because they had kind of, the first Models album had kind of spaghetti Western influences. It had carnival, you know, music kind of influences. It's his guitar as well. It's quite strange like that. Yeah. And you can tell that Models were influenced by everything from show tunes to classical music to whatever, whereas um, Ice House, to me, sound as if they're influenced very specifically by glam, by mm. Bowie, by... Well, Ultra there was Bucks a song called Dedicated to Glam on yeah, Primitive yeah. Man. In in summary, I'd still say these two bands had a huge influence on the, the post-punk landscape such as it was in Australia, which was completely yeah. different to the other bands that we've spoken about and the influences that they had. But we're, we're a long way away. We're a little bit behind the eight ball. But these two bands released extraordinary albums in 1980, the yep. latter half of 1980 and went on to do some really interesting things before selling out and becoming rather large commercial successes and good luck to them for doing that. <laughs>